from 1 Peter. Tim is continuing to preach from 1 Peter, uh, beginning at chapter 2, verse 11. There it is, 2.11, And there, Peter, writing to the exiles, scattered around the Mediterranean, gives these words. Dear friends, it's a nice way to begin, isn't it? Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insult at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You and her daughters, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner 
and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And so we come to our prayers this morning, don't we? We pray that nothing will hinder our prayers rising to the throne in heaven. Let's come before the Lord God, our Saviour, our King, with our offering with our offering of prayers. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come before you this morning as your people, people whom you have redeemed by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are recipients of divine grace and mercy. Lord, it's overwhelming for us again this morning as we hear this gospel of forgiveness and salvation, of restoration to relationship with you. And it comes up in our hearts, Lord, to, to want to devote ourselves to you more ardently, more wholeheartedly than we did last Sunday. For, Lord, the greatest gift of all is this gift of life, eternal life and fellowship with you. We did come with joy in our hearts to sing your praise this morning. We did come to have fellowship and enjoy that fellowship with your people We pray, Lord, that you will indeed open our hearts and fill us with that love of Jesus for all people, helping us to introduce ourselves to visitors, to know one another, to grow in brotherly love one to the other. We're thankful, Lord, that you gave us opportunity to do that for Margaret this week too. And we are thankful, Lord, that you, even though it is hard in parting, you have taken Neville home to be with you. And that is a comfort to Margaret and us. We pray that you'll continue to surround her with the love of your people, which are but signs of your love for her too. Father, we are also mindful of our society and we want to bring before you this morning in prayer the absence, the disappearance of little Cleo Smith. It has struck the hearts of all people in Australia And we pray, Lord, that in your grace and your love and your will, you may bring her back safely. We pray for her, Lord, that you may give that information which is necessary to uh, find her again. Father, we want to bring before you our elders' election this morning, that you will choose again men to govern us, the spiritual life of the church, And bless those who have been chosen and those who have not. We pray for our pastors, Dan and Tim, that you will protect them from all evil and temptation and continually arouse in their hearts the passion for promoting Jesus in our midst. That you may make them men of blessing to our hearts and lives. Lord, we remember the Reformation service this afternoon at Grace. We pray, Lord, that as your people gather from all the different churches and classes, that there may, we may rejoice in the amazing way that you raised up simple men to reform the church at that time. Thank you, Lord, that the word of God became known again Thank you, Lord, that the gospel of free salvation 
without works, was remade again, refound again. And we pray, Lord, that as children of that Reformation, we may continue faithful to those who've gone before us. And so, Lord, we want to commit to you the work of our Reformed Theological College, the work of Trinity here in Perth, that you'll continue to provide institutions of learning where your word can be faithfully proclaimed and train men and women for the ministry of your gospel. Lord, we remember our vacant congregations in WA of Gosnells and Australind and pray that in your time, Lord, you will guide them to the men of your choice. We pray, Father, for Jordan as he prepares himself for his preaching license in a few weeks' time. Give him all that he needs to, to to present himself and the knowledge you have given him to be one who can proclaim your word faithfully. Lord, we are mindful that we do have a government to uh, obey. But sometimes, Lord, that government, which doesn't acknowledge you, makes laws that are unbiblical against your will of righteousness. And so, Father, we pray for our government. We pray for those in authority over us that you in your mercy may guide them into laws of righteousness and away from that which is evil. We thank you and pray that you will continue to give us the freedoms of speech and worship in this land. To that end too, Lord, we pray for the work of your people, men who proclaim your word and stand up as Christians in politics. Bless them, Lord. Strengthen them. Give them wisdom in the way that they speak, hearts of love for those who oppose them. We pray for our Christian Prime Minister. We pray for the Christian Premier of New South Wales. Lord, may they be lights in the land of darkness. And closer to home, Lord, we just pray for our own testimony in our own lives. We go out from this place, first day of the week, into a new working week. We don't know what is before us, Lord, but you do. Prepare our hearts, Lord, to stand up for Jesus, wherever that is necessary, and grant us to do, that we may do that with the harmlessness of the dove and the wisdom of the serpent. And Lord, we want to also pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in so many lands. We aren't there with them, where their lives are taken, where they are tortured, imprisoned, their churches burned, their earthly possessions taken from them. We pray for them, Lord, that you will be their treasure and their pleasure, that in you they may find all that they need to stand up for Jesus. Especially, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, those who have chosen to stay to preach your gospel to their own people. Keep them, Lord, protect them and use them for your glory. And now, Lord, tune our hearts to hear your word preached from Second Peter. May indeed, Lord, your word uh, find a resting place in our hearts to change us, to transform our minds into the mind of Jesus so our lives may glorify you. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.
So as we head into our uh, and continue our series on 1 Peter, uh, today we definitely come to an incredibly juicy passage of 1 Peter. Uh, we don't have just one, two, but three perhaps controversial topics to cover today. Uh, so it's going to be a good one. Um, but for that reason, um, I'd love to just pray uh, for God's help as I've wrestled with this myself. But now as we as a church community come before God's word and wrestle with it together and um, <clears throat> seek to, to hear from God. Um, so let me pray for us now. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you again afresh for your word, the words of life. Father, uh, as we uh, consider our passage before us this morning and and what does it mean to submit? Uh, What does it mean to live for you in a broken world? Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work amongst us, would convict us, would draw us close to you. And I thank you so much for your grace that you offer to us. Your grace to change us, to not leave us in our sin, uh, but transform us into the image of your Son. And yeah, I pray, Father, that uh, you'd be with us now, with me as I speak now, and consider these words before us in your holy word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1 Peter so far, in our series, as we've looked over the last three or so weeks, we've seen some of the core things that Peter really wants to show us, show his church about God and about the Christian life. We explored the amazing hope, the eternal hope that we have in Jesus. We've seen that we worship a holy God, and such a holy God calls us, to live holy lives. We've also seen our Christian identity and how important it is and the purpose that we find in the Christian life and all that in the face of a hostile world. A world that, perhaps in big and small ways, to different measures, to different degrees, is hostile to the Christian faith, the truth of the gospel, to Jesus. Now, over the coming weeks, as we continue our series in 1 Peter, we have the opportunity to look at what holiness looks like in action. In a sense, we get to put what we've learnt over the last three weeks into practice as the rubber hits the road uh, into the gritty details of day-to-day life. We see this really introduced for us in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. There, Peter says this, He says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on uh, on the day he visits us. So here we see Peter, he wants us to fight sin, to live holy lives as we await our final destination, our true and eternal home that we have with Jesus in the life to come. Pursuing such a life for us is God-honouring and God-glorifying. Yeah, we can move on from that slide, that's fine. 
But he also wants to give us here another motivation for us to live such a holy life. That motivation is that it is a powerful evangelistic witness to our neighbours. Even at the same time, it may bring ridicule to us. This is evident in verse 12 there, where Peter desires unbelievers to glorify God on the day of visitation. I mean, what's going on there? It's good to ask that question. Uh, I believe it's talking about the last day when Jesus returns. But there's a debate there about whether or not it's primarily talking about judgment of unbelievers on the last day. Or is it talking about uh, the, the salvation of those who come to Christ on the last day? And I think actually the second option fits better in context. If that's the case, what Peter's saying here then is this. Uh, this is a paraphrase I've come up with. It says, Christian, live such holy lives in order to be such a good witness that although many would speak evil of you, some will see your faith and become Christians so that they too might uh, join you in glorifying God when he returns. So there we see this overarching principle. Not only are we to strive to live holy lives to honour God and fight sin, but actually forms a crucial part to our Christian witness as we live out the gospel in this day-to-day life here on earth. Yes, a witness that may repel many, but also attracts. There's a paradox to the Christian faith where we're both repulsive and attractive at the same time. So we see this holiness in action, this principle that's introduced there, and in a lot of ways carries on to the rest of our letter. And so for most of the time this morning, for the rest of this morning, I really want to focus, focus on what one part of that looks like. And that's holiness in submission. Holiness in submission. What, Paul, uh, what Peter sorry, details in the rest of our passage this morning is what holiness looks like and submission in three key spheres of life. He speaks about uh, governments, masters, and marriages. Now, time is limited. I can't cover all these in great depth. But I do hope what I've prepared this morning is going to be really fruitful for us this morning. And I very much want to encourage uh, the conversation to continue after this morning. If it's in small groups, if it's in one-on-one conversations, if it's with an elder, with with Pastor Dan or myself, uh, this is very much a conversation that we need to have, really, as a Christian community, as Christians living in the 21st century. And so let's kick straight off into our passage as we start looking at the area of submission within governments. In verses 13 to 17, Peter just says, Christians, submit to your government authorities over us. The key principle laid out before us is simply this. That as far as we can, without disobeying God, as Christians we are called to obey the law of the land in which we live. We see this in verse 13 where it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent to him, are sent by him. A few verses later, interestingly, in verse 17, it says there, Show proper respect to everyone. 
love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. This is interesting because the emperor was to receive the same honour as everyone else. While fellow uh, believers and God had special treatment. Before we can really understand this, it's really important that we understand the world in which Peter lived. In this sense, we need to get into our time capsule and head back a few millennium to the first century when uh, the, where Rome was uh, ruling, the Roman world, uh, we had the emperor and uh, yeah, Peter living within uh, the Roman emperor, uh, empire. At such a time, emperors, they were seen as uh, godlike, semi-divine in their position and what they represented in that, in that time and culture. Peter addressed that fact by saying that only God is to receive reverent fear and our worship. At the time, that was countercultural. For Christians certainly would have received poor treatment at times because they would not worship the emperor. And yet, excluding that idolatry of the culture at the time, Peter says and commands Christians that he says, obey the laws of the society. Serve emperor as much as you can, as long as it's not entering into idolatry. In this way, the Christian faith is, is not one of anarchy. I've got a verse from Romans 13.1 there, where Paul explicitly teaches that governments are established by God. Their authority is from God. It is God-ordained. As we fast forward to the 21st century and consider our current cultural setting, we get back into our time capsule. That's right. right. (laughs) Uh, Of course, our culture is different, but the principle remains. Certainly, uh, as I consider COVID these last 18 months and the many things that has happened uh, in Australia and around the world, Uh, I've been challenged personally on this, and I believe the church as a whole, particularly as we've wrestled with the notion of freedom. What I've wrestled with, and many Christians have, is, is our notion of freedom based on the biblical view of freedom, or on the culture's view of freedom? Now, if I were to try and sum up in one way, perhaps what our culture would say freedom is, uh, it I would say that it's sort of we are free to do whatever we want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. So if that's your idea of freedom, that getting out and about and having this self-determined life, that whatever you want is what you should be allowed to do and what is your definition of freedom, then of course when COVID measures come along, (laughs) that directly challenges that notion of freedom. You can't do all the stuff you really want to go and do. And yet, what Peter, uh, what Peter emphasises in our passage, particularly in verse 16, uh, is a different kind of freedom. A, a freedom that's actually defined as being a slave. Being a slave of God. That's a bit confusing. What does he mean by that? I think turning to Romans 6 might be helpful for us as we see Paul weigh in on the conversation. In Romans 6, uh, do I have a slide, I think? Uh, maybe no, this is where my slide's cut out. Uh, that's fine. In Romans 6, 
Paul there speaks of the Christian life and he says, as a Christian, you're no longer slaves to sin. You're a slave to righteousness. And so there we lay out two slaveries in a sense. In one sense, we could either be, in a real sense, enslaved to our sinful desires or we could be slaves to righteousness as we dedicate our lives to God. And because Jesus has set us free from the greatest of bondage, of sin, we understand freedom in light of the cross. Ultimately, sin, the greatest freedom on offer for the Christian, is freedom from sin and a life now being able to live for God and dedicated to Him. And so, as Peter uh, expands on uh, human authority and our need to submit to that authority, we as Christians can accept limitations over us under the human governments that God himself has ordained, even if at times it costs us in some way. So when I begin to wrestle with this with you this morning, my question is, how is your heart going with this? As you reflect on the last 18 months and some of the lockdowns and some of the challenges that we've faced, How's your heart going in whether or not you're pursuing a worldly freedom or seeing freedom that you have in Jesus and being able to submit to others under that freedom? It certainly for me has challenged that notion of freedom and I think it has been a way that God has reproved us and sharpened us and and caused us to grow deeper in our faith. Now, I will say for a moment that submission to our governments, it it doesn't mean that we uh, ignore the deep felt pain that we perhaps will feel at times, nor does it mean staying uh, tight-lipped about any injustice that has occurred or does occur from governments. And and past 18 months, I think there has been some things that have caused a lot of pain for people. And I would actually say personally, at times, has been government overreach. And it's true that many people over the last 18 months have come through uh, some of these government measures relatively unscathed. But it would be insensitive for us to ignore the fact that many people have had their livelihoods destroyed. Uh, I personally know a lot of people that have come to breaking point over the last 18 months. Lost jobs, uh, even with the vaccine mandates that have been coming in. That's been a breaking point for some people. Now, think what you may about the vaccine. It is a matter of conscience. Let's uh, your conscience. Let's not murder each other <laughs> over that topic. And I wish I had more time to address it, but I, I just can't. But what I will address is the economic coercion for people to take it up. They, we're said that we have a choice, and yet that's not really a choice when it's, you have to choose between your job and livelihood and not. Uh, you may and it, you may choose to do that. That's fine, but I think it would be um, insensitive to realise that that actually puts a lot of people in really stressful situations. Some people are broken over that, and as a, we need to be understanding to others in that. But yes, we are called to submit. We are called to obey our governments where we're able to, and even submit at times to things that we may not want to do for various reasons. But despite that, I think, uh, the, as I consider the church in the West, 
in some ways, we are heading on the cusp, if you will, uh, to having to ask a question that we may not have had to ask for a long time. Historically, uh, Christianity uh, in Australia, we've basically been founded on the Christian faith, this, this country and the Western world. But in a lot of ways, we have to begin to ask this question, do we actually always obey our government? There may be times in the future that we are called to not obey. A lot of this is hard to say without laws specifically that I can mention. Uh, I can mention a few in other states. But one contemporary issue that is facing and that our Christian Reformed churches have had to wrestle with over in the East and I wouldn't be surprised if we will have to wrestle with, is the issue of having vaccinated, unvaccinated people together. We, on the one hand, we are called to submit to our government. We have to take that seriously, and Peter makes that. That is a clear implication of our text. And yet, on the other hand, we also have to wrestle with the fact that the gospel has always brought together people of all types and hasn't hasn't discriminated on such a basis. Whether it's the Indian caste system, or the gap between the rich and the poor, or the black and white, or whatever you want to add in that category. The gospel has always brought together people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And as I said, this is something our churches over the East has have to, have to wrestle with, and various views have come out of that. And of course, we don't know what our government here in WA is going to do just yet. But it will be something, I believe, that we may need to wrestle with in a serious way. So secondly, uh, that's, that's looking at governments broadly. Next, Peter moves on to masters in chapters, uh, chapter 2, 18 through to verse 20. And there he, he addresses slaves and masters. And there, slaves again are called to submit, to submit to their masters. Once again, for us to properly understand this, we do need to get back into our time capsule and head back into Peter's day. Back into the culture, the Roman culture in which he lived. Such a culture at that time, slavery was uh, prevalent. And in fact, it was a big part of the economy at the time. The forced labor, uh, labor of the slave, uh, slaves was what undergirded the whole society. And it's true uh, that many slaves were not actually treated poorly. Some were actually quite well educated and they earned esteemed positions within their households. But many slaves actually were treated poorly. They were seen as property, treated harshly and perhaps even suffered abuse. It was a hard life for many in slavery. And only a small portion of slaves would actually gain their freedom in their whole life. Within such a context, uh, Peter, he commends slaves to serve faithfully their masters, even when it's difficult. Why? Well, the reason is given in verse 20. There he says it's commendable in God's eyes. Ultimately, they were to know that their inheritance in Jesus, the eternal life to come, and what that was secured for them through Jesus, couldn't be taken away. Nothing could diminish that, even the wrongs that they would suffer in this life. When we head back into our time capsule to today, again, we're going to ask the question, what do we make of this? 
Perhaps the most question someone reading this passage for the first time might ask is this. Why didn't Peter just outright condemn slavery? And instead he kind of just says, bear with it. To this, again, I think it's really important for us to understand that Peter was speaking into the situation in which he was confronted with. Just because he says, submit to your master, doesn't mean that he agrees with the evil ways or the institution of slavery as a whole. For he certainly recognizes that evil was done by some masters in verse 18. But what he is doing is is he's saying, what is God calling them to in their situation? Despite the incredible broken world in which they lived and in which we also live. It wouldn't be until many centuries later that Christianity influenced culture in such a way that the institution of slavery was finally reformed. Uh, in preparing this, I thought of the Christian British politician Will, uh, William Wilberforce, who in the 18th and 19th century did indeed dedicate his life, really, to abolishing slavery. And he accomplished greatness, uh, great things through uh, his life. So how does this apply to us today? If we, by and large, are not facing this you know, master-slave uh, relationship, how then do we consider our own lives today? Well, I think that the principle is transferable, most naturally to the employer and employee uh, relationship. If you've worked for any length of time uh, in, in the workforce, I'm sure you probably come across some employers easier to work for than others. The call for us is to submit to all authority, including the employers over us, even some that are more difficult. And of course, this is challenging. I wonder if you've ever seen someone being tempted to strike back at the employer for something that's been said or some treatment that someone's received. Uh, Some of the stories that I've heard have been quite shocking, actually, over the years, even things that happen in this country. But what Peter is saying, again, is he puts our witness front and foremost, living honourable lives for God, even when it's difficult to do so. Of course, this doesn't mean we have to stay employed under someone who, you know, is difficult. If we, by all means, if we can find another job, then you're free to do that. But what it does mean is while you are employed in that job, God wants you to work in that situation to be a witness for him and to respond in a godly manner, even when it's difficult to do so. So, so far we've briefly looked at governments and masters. Thirdly, uh, we now have another hot topic. We now head into marriages. So, Peter continues uh, next to look into the husband and wife relationship. He does this in verses 1 to 7 in chapter 3. And there again, he says, Wives are to submit to their husbands, while husbands are called to be considerate and treat their wives well with respect and honour. In verses 1 to 6 there, the emphasis is especially on wives who for whatever reason are currently married to an unbeliever. Once again, Peter's heart is coming through here. He wants to see unbelieving husbands be won over by the faith and conduct without a word uh, of their wives. For these women, 
Peter is saying your conduct is a powerful witness in your situation. Rather than giving in to the excesses of external beauty, seek internal beauty, seek character, beautiful uh, beauty on the inside. Uh, I mean, how many pop songs are still talk about that today? That is where that's what true holy living is. That is what God truly values: a godly character. Once again, we need to understand the context here. We must enter back into Paul's uh, Peter's world for a second. At that time, uh, in the Roman culture, women were not seen as equal to men. They were seen as inferior. In this way, wives would have been expected to follow even the religion of their husbands in the household. For wives then who had become Christians, that would have put them in a difficult position. Yet Peter doesn't simply say, just break off the marriage. He's saying, no, marriage is from God. And your calling is to live out your faith in that situation. And actually, Peter is quite radical here in verse 7 when he says of women that they are co-heirs with their husbands of the gracious gift of life. Why is this radical? Well, this is simply restating uh, the truth of Genesis 1 where both men and women are image bearers of God. Although they perform different roles, they are both equal in value and worth in God's sight. Fast forward again to today, how again do we tackle this as a Christian church in our culture? Indeed, this is a prickly issue in our culture today and may raise some issues personally for you. To use the word submit in this context within our culture reeks of male dominance and oppression of women. And it is especially difficult to tackle this when many men do indeed continue to mistreat women and wives and partners. Uh, in writing this sermon, I remembered one lady in particular who uh, she'd failed to uh, form a meaningful relationship and a loving relationship with a man and start a family. And that's, that's what she wanted to do. She desperately wanted that. Uh, but for her, she tried numerous relationships They all failed, they were hurtful, and she came out of it broken, and she felt used by men. She thought after this, I am done with men. And so she decided to uh, go and get a sperm donor and start a family as a single mum instead. Now, even though I wouldn't condone that way of, uh, that course of action, God's grace is sufficient to work in in all imperfect situations in the world we live in. And I understand what perhaps led her to that decision, especially if men had treated her that way. That again just highlights how difficult this can be to, to address in our culture. And so I think it's important that we be clear for a moment and say what Peter isn't saying. He's not condoning evil mistreatment of women. He's saying of the husbands, no, you should love your wives. He is simply speaking into the culture of his day, into a broken world, much like the broken world we live in today. In fact, the equal value that he attributed to women was extremely countercultural in his time. So if we think just afresh for a moment and revisit the biblical ideal of marriage, it's different to both what his culture said in the day 
And it's actually different in, in many ways to what our culture says. Rather than it, uh, it's when a man and a woman freely and vol- voluntarily come together in loving covenantal union and fulfill God's calling for them in that union. It's for the wife, it does mean lovingly trusting and coming under the leadership of your husband. And for the husband, it says, uh, if you look at Ephesians 5.25, their husbands are called to actually sacrifice yourself, just like Christ sacrificed himself for the church. You sacrifice yourself for the benefit of your wife and your family. And in our passage before us, Peter says to husbands are to honor wives, to be considerate. But of course, we do live in a broken world. There are many dysfunctional families, relationships and marriages. And perhaps you've faced one that's been hurtful for you. Uh, My own parents have split up when I was younger as well. All this reminds us again of the desperate need and the power of the gospel to continue to restore, to heal, to reconcile, just like it was accomplishing in the day that Peter lived. So, so far we've seen sort of really two key things from our passage this morning. We've seen the overarching principle that Peter highlights for us, to live holy lives, to put our holiness into action. Secondly, we saw this specifically in the area of submission. Holiness in submission. And in that we saw it in three spheres of life. Peter expands on governments, masters and marriages. Lastly, I just want to explore for a few moments, holiness pioneered. For us to see that, let's return to chapter 2 and verses 21 to 25 where we see some incredible verses before us. What Peter does here is he lays out the foundation, the whole structure on which this call to holy submission resides. That is, on Christ's own example of suffering and submission for the Lord's sake, for our sake, the church. Let me just read the verses again. Verse 21, it says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps, in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And leading up to the events and including the cross, Jesus suffered at the hand of evildoers. The one who had done no wrong willingly endured. He willingly submitted to his Father's will. On the cross, Jesus dealt with the core reason why we are in a broken world that is full of evil. The power of sin was exhausted on him so that in spiritual union with him through the Holy Spirit, we might be made righteous again. 
This is the only solution to the brokenness in our world. The gospel is the only thing that can take away sin and change hearts and lives. Nothing else, no amount of education, no scientific advancement or societal or governmental reform. Only Jesus. And the only way to face suffering is then to look to Jesus. As we consider what it means to submit, even when it's hard, look at Jesus, look at what he suffered. Look at you, what he went through in order for us to be saved. It's only Christian when you truly understand and appreciate that and see how precious that is, that is when you and I are empowered to live out our calling in this world, to submit to those over us, to see our true freedom that we have in Christ. And so Christian, I ask you this morning, do you see your suffering saviour up there on the cross, your caring shepherd and overseer of your soul, that no matter what life throws at you is with you. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Heavy Father, uh, again, we just want to thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that uh, you have saved us out of darkness into your glorious light. Father, we thank you that you have made us anew You've made us righteous and that you are making us more righteous every day through your Holy Spirit. Father, we confess at times that we struggle to, uh, to submit to those in authority over us. We know that our sin so often causes us to want to rebel. Father, I pray, Lord, that uh, will you do a mighty work in us? Will you help us to live out our calling faithfully? Such a calling that may be attractive to others, even if it repels others. Father, I pray that uh, we would just love Jesus so much that we can't help but share him with others in us, in our lives. And uh, Father, I pray that our lives, uh, I guess, wouldn't be dishonoring to you. That actually we wouldn't bring uh, disrepute to your name in our day-to-day actions. But actually, in all things, we would give you glory. Because that is your due. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.